Hello, I'm Mike Lindell, inventor of my pillow, here to tell you about my Giza Dream bed sheets. I made sure that they would be everything you'd ever want in a sheet set. I started with the world's finest cotton called Giza. It's only grown in a region where the Sahara Desert, the Nile River, and the Mediterranean Sea all meet. The long staple cotton makes my Giza Dream sheets ultra soft and durable. They come with extra wide pillowcases to fit over any pillow and extra deep pockets to fit over any mattress. Not only that, they come with my 60-day money-back guarantee and a 10-year warranty. And now you can get the best sheets ever for the best price ever. When you buy one of my Giza Dream bed sheet sets, you'll get another one absolutely free. I personally guarantee that they'll be the most comfortable sheets you'll ever own. Go to MyPillow.com and click on the Radio Listener Specials for the buy one, get one free offer on Giza Sheets. All you got to do, Renegade Nation, is enter the promo code RENEGADE or call 1-800-889-6817 for these great specials. That's 1-800-889-6817. Use the promo code RENEGADE. Please be aware, the stories, theories, reenactments, and language in this podcast are of an adult nature and can be considered disturbing, frightening, and in some cases even offensive. Listener discretion is therefore advised. Welcome, heathens. Welcome to the world of the weird and unexplained. I am your host, Nicole Delacroix, and together we will be investigating stories about the things that go bump in the night. Frighteningly imagined creatures, supernatural beings, and even some unsolved mysteries. But I promise, all sorts of weirdness. So, sit back, grab your favorite drink, and prepare to be transported to today's dark enigma. And on today's Dark Enigma, well, we have a very interesting listener suggestion, so let's get on with it. Alright, with that said, we will still be playing our drinking game. And as you know, the drinking game is only for those of us that are at home and have nowhere else to go tonight. The choice of libation, as always, my darlings, is yours, so choose your poison accordingly. Alright, now for the game part. How about every time I say king, that will be a single shot. And every time I say Babylon, that will be a double shot. I know you guys were waiting for England, but no, Babylon. Now that we have the business end out of the way, we can jump head first into today's dark enigma. So grab your best clay tablet to keep notes and your abacus because, well, that's Babylonian, as we dive into today's offering of that wild and crazy guy, the last king of Babylon, digging into a reign of Mesopotamia's most eccentric ruler. I know, that had a lot of big words in there. I need a break already. (laughs) Nabonidus was the last king of the Neo-Babylonian Empire reigning from 556 to 539 BC. He took the throne after the assassination of the boy king Labashi Marduk, who was murdered in a conspiracy only nine months after his inauguration. 
It's not known whether Nabonidus played a role in his death, but he was chosen as the new king soon after, so, you know, make with that what you will. During many years of his kingship, Nabonidus was absent at the Arabian oasis of Tema. The reasons for his long absence remain a matter of controversy, with theories ranging from illness to madness to an interest in religious archaeology. But we're going to explore this. The fall of an empire in antiquity was usually the result of complex, interconnected factors that lay beyond the scope of any one person's control. Nonetheless, traumatized contemporaries and later historians alike have often laid the fault at the feet of a single individual. The enigmatic Neo-Babylonian king Nabonidus seemed destined for just such a fate. After the Persian armies of Cyrus the Great marched through Babylon's gates in October 539 BC. By deposing Nabonidus, whose reign was marked by eccentric political and religious choices, the Persians ensured that he would be the last ruler of the Neo-Babylonian Empire that lasted from 626 to, you guessed it, 539 BC. And also, he was the last native-born Mesopotamian king. But for some 2,500 years, Mesopotamian cities, states, and empires had been ruled by their own or by outsiders who adopted their ways. But after Nabonidus, the region was conquered by a series of foreign empires before Mesopotamia's great ancient cities such as Ur, Uruk, and Babylon finally withered away. Many sources from antiquity cast Nabonidus as the villain who brought about the downfall of Babylon, and by extension, Mesopotamia. Today, some scholars believe that, despite being variously portrayed in ancient texts as a mad usurper and a heretic whose apostasy doomed an empire, Nabonidus may in fact have simply been a difficult personality with a singular political vision whose reign was cut short before he could realize his own ambitions. Ever since Assyriologists, those who specialize in translating Mesopotamian cuneiform documents, mostly in the form of clay tablets, first began to read Neo-Babylonian records excavated in the late 19th century, Nabonidus has stood out as an unusual ruler. While the record is fragmentary, cuneiform tablets and inscriptions have helped scholars trace Nabonidus's unconventional career. A palace courtier, Nabonidus came to power in his 50s, possibly his 60s, by way of a coup that may have been orchestrated by his son, Belshazzar, who plays a central role in the Bible's book of Daniel. In this biblical account, Nabonidus, who is mistakenly identified as his predecessor, Nebuchadnezzar II, is described as a mad king obsessed with dreams. According to the book of Daniel, the king leaves Babylon to live in the wilderness for seven years. 
This depiction overlaps somewhat with Nabonidus' own inscriptions, in which he emphasizes that he was an especially pious man who paid heed to dreams as the divine messages of the gods. Nabonidus was also infamous in antiquity for abandoning Babylon for ten years to live in the deserts of Saudi Arabia, where he established a kind of shadow capital at the oasis of Tema. This was a strange and unprecedented move for a Mesopotamian ruler. Nabonidus was also known for his near fanatical devotion to the moon god Sin, whom he raised to the status of the most important deity in the Babylonian pantheon. I don't know about you, but I agree Sin should be number one, but that's just for fun. Anyways, this came at the, the expense of Marduk. Babylon's longtime patron god, whom earlier Neo-Babylonian kings had promoted as the empire's chief deity. Some scholars believe that by elevating Sin, a god whose main temples lay outside the city of Babylon, Nabonidus was perhaps attempting to unite a large and diffuse empire under the worship of a god who held more appeal than Marduk to people throughout the realm. Nabonidus's efforts to hold together his realm may have ultimately gone unrealized, but by exploring his reign, scholars can learn more about the final days of the Neo-Babylonian Empire. Nabonidus left behind some 3,000 cuneiform inscriptions, far more than any other Neo-Babylonian king. New readings of some of these tablets, findings from excavations at Tema, and the recent discovery of additional inscriptions dating to Nabonidus' reign are all giving scholars a chance to tease out the ambiguities that lay at the heart of the reign of Babylon's last king. For most of the 3rd millennia BC, Babylon was just one of many Sumerian city-states that flourished in southern Mesopotamia. Older cities such as Ur, whose patron deity was the moon god Nana, later known as Sen, were much more powerful. Around 2000 BC, Babylon began to acquire a reputation as a religious center and place of scholarship. By then, its residents spoke Akkadian, a Semitic language that had replaced Sumerian as the lingua franca of Mesopotamia. During this period, after the rise of what scholars today call the Old Babylonian Dynasty and the ascension of rulers such as Hammurabi, somewhere circa 1810 to 1750 BC, Babylon became the region's most influential city. Perhaps a minor storm god, Marduk, became its patron and was gradually elevated to his position as one of the most powerful deities in the Mesopotamian pantheon. Throughout the 2nd and early 1st millennia BC, Babylon's status as Mesopotamia's leading city waxed and waned. Although it was sometimes seized by foreigners, these outsiders always eventually adopted Babylonian culture, becoming indistinguishable from the city's Akkadian-speaking citizens. After living under the kings of the Neo-Assyrian Empire, which ruled from 911 to 609 BC for several centuries, Babylonians led by a local chieftain named Nabopolassar, who reigned 626 to 605 BC, revolted, and after a protracted civil war, seized power, establishing the Neo-Babylonian Empire. 
This ushered in a period that saw Babylon become an imperial city, an imperial capital, sorry, capital city, as its armies conquered much of the territory previously ruled by Neo-Assyrian kings. Nabopolassar was succeeded by his son Nebuchadnezzar II, who was known for his military conquests, including the capture of Jerusalem and his building projects, which included the construction of the city's famed Ishtar Gate. The gate was decorated with colorful molded and glazed bricks, some of which depict a Mashusha, the mythological dragon that was Marduk's totemic animal. In the last decade of the 7th century BC, Babylonian forces conquered the final remnants of the Neo-Assyrian Empire to the north, including Haran, the home city of Nabonidus' family. At that time, his mother, Adapgupi, a priestess of Sen, was brought to Babylon, perhaps with her son, whom she may have established at court in a position of influence. Some tablets dating to the reign of Nebuchadnezzar II mention an official named Nabonidus, which might refer to the future king. Some of these texts suggest Nabonidus was a contentious person with an abrasive manner. One states that he ordered the beating of a man who had made a seemingly innocuous inquiry about orders relating to the robe outfitting the statue of a god. But the future king was also some sources report, a skilled diplomat. According to the 5th century BC Greek historian Herodotus, Nabonidus may have negotiated a peace treaty between the Iranian people called the Medes and the Lydians of Anatolia. After his lengthy reign, Nebuchadnezzar II was succeeded by his son-in-law, Nereglisser, who ruled from 560 to 556 BC, and only sat on the throne for four years. He in turn was eventually succeeded by his son Labashi Marduk, who reigned for a mere two weeks before a coup deposed him and placed an already elderly Nabonidus on the throne. The court records of the Neo-Babylonian kings have not been discovered. Thus, a seriologist must use other texts, chiefly financial and real estate transactions, to piece together the political events of that day. For example, multiple tablets suggest that Nabonidus' son, Belshazzar, seems to have taken over many of Labashi Marduk's real estate holdings, making him a prime suspect as the coup's mastermind. But who helped him put his father on the throne has been an open question. In search of the identities of those who were in Nabonidus' camp, University of Warsaw Assyriologist Malgor- Malgorzata Sandowitz studied cuneiform tablets detailing real estate transactions that bear the king's imprimatur. Senowitz has found that many men in these records held high titles and were the kind of palace officials one would expect to find in close proximity to the king. A smaller number of men without titles seems to have been Nabonidus's more intimate associates. Some of them had held positions of power under Nebuchadnezzar II and Nereglisser, They seem to have retained the king's special favor, suggesting that these companions of Nabonidus could have been critical allies in the coup that installed him as king. Quite a few members of this royal retinue were Armenians, an ethnic group whose tribes lived across the Neo-Babylonian Empire. A native of the northern city of Haran, where many Armenians lived, Nabonidus may well have been Armenian himself. 
At this time, the Armenian Semitic language, Aramaic, was rapidly displacing Akkadian as the empire's leading language. Armenians are hard to identify in Babylonian records, says Sandowitz. They are often managed their own affairs in the framework of their own tribal institutions. So the fact that they appear here as associates of the king is rather significant. If Nabonidus maintained close links with Armenians, that could indicate he might have been interested in keeping a power base outside the official Babylonian system. Sanowitz notes that just as interesting as who is included in these real estate transactions is who is absent. She has found that those transactions bearing Nabonidus' stamp of approval include very few names of men belonging to the old, distinguished Babylonian families who had long been associated with the city's temples. Perhaps, she suggests, there was a power struggle between Nabonidus and these prominent temple families, one that foreshadowed a later religious schism. In the first three years of his reign, Nabonidus consolidated his rule. His inscriptions proclaimed that he campaigned to the west, leading armies to Anatolia and the Levant. He seems to have allied himself with the Persian king Cyrus the Great, who ruled 559 to 530 BC, whose realm was under control of the Medes when his reign began. Nabonidus encouraged Cyrus to revolt against the Medes, a decision that would eventually come back to haunt him. During the, this first phase of his rule, Nabonidus claims to have rebuilt the walls of Babylon, a boast made by nearly every Babylonian king, and to have ordered the rebuilding of temples throughout Mesopotamia. As part of these temple renovations, he was particularly interested in recovering ancient religious cuneiform dedications and statues, and ordered special excavations to hunt for them. He was already making the worship of sin the centerpiece of his rule. In the second year of his reign, he rededicated the Temple of Sin in Ur during a lunar eclipse. He also established his daughter as the main priestess there, evidence of how much he valued his personal connection to the god. Perhaps he wanted to be sure he had a close relative keeping an eye on the priests of the god to whom he was so devoted. It was after Nabonidus launched successful campaigns in Edom and Cilicia, modern Turkey, that he left Babylon, residing at the rich desert oasis of Tema in Arabia, returning only after many years. In the meantime, his son Belshazzar ruled from Babylon. Nabonidus returned to the capital in time to lead his armies against the ascendant forces of Persia under Cyrus the Great. Nabonidus eventually surrendered to the Persian forces in 539 BC and was allowed to live out his life in relative freedom. The end of his reign marks the beginning of the Persian Empire and the end of the Babylonian captivity of the Jews. We don't know why he did this at his age, says Hans-Peter Schaudig, a Heidelberg University Assyriologist and continues, it would have made much more sense for his son to lead the army and for him to stay at the capital to maintain power and oversee religious rights there. End quote. It is possible that clashes with the priests of Marduk and perhaps even with his son impelled Nabonidus to quit Babylon. In his absence, the city's New Year ceremony and the renewal of the king's authority went uncelebrated for ten years, and Marduk languished in the Esagalia temple. 
Later accounts may exaggerate the extent to which this troubled the Babylonians, but it probably was a source of great anxiety for many in the city. Archaeologists continue to study clues that might explain Nabonidus' mysterious distant sojourn. A depiction of the king engraved on a rock face almost 400 feet above a canyon floor in what is now today Jordan shows that, among other things, he was busy campaigning in the lands to the west, occupied by the people known in the Bible as Edomites. University of Barcelona archaeologist Rocco da Riva recently led a team of climbers who conducted a detailed study of the depiction and the degraded inscription that accompanies it. The scene, like others depicting Nabonidus, shows him wearing a conical cap and praying to celestial symbols representing three deities, Sen, the goddess Ishtar, represented by the star symbol, and Shamash, the sun god. The inscription accompanying the scene is illegible, but Deriva believes it commemorates a Babylonian victory over forces occupying an Edomite fortress at the site of Sela, which stood on a mountaintop looming just a few hundred feet above the panel. Deriva and her team found that the panel was almost impossible to see by anyone except those who walked up an ancient narrow staircase leading to the remains of the fortress at Sela. Seizing such a well-defended position may have been a matter of pride to, to Nabonidus and his army. Perhaps, suggests Deriva, they situated the panel to mark the scene of a hard-fought battle as a way of reminding the Edomites of Babylon's might. Some 350 miles to the southwest of Sela, a Saudi-German team, now led by the German Archaeological Institute's Arnulf Hausleiter, has been excavating at the oasis of Tamus since 2005. Before they began, Nabonidus' presence at the oasis was only known from the literary record. In surveys and excavations, however, they have found structures and inscriptions dating to the period of Nabonidus' residence there, and a number of artifacts bearing the king's name. The formal cuneiform inscriptions discovered by the team, including a weathered stella excavated from the site, are largely fragmentary, but are similar to the monuments Nabonidus erected at Babylon. This came as a surprise to Shaudig, who translated the Neo-Babylonian text found at Tema, and he says, I thought out in the desert he would have commissioned inscriptions that would have expressed more independent thinking, but they repeat the form of ones from Babylonia. A royal inscription identified on a rock face in the summer of 2021, about 200 miles southeast of Tema, near the Saudi Arabian town of Al-Hayat, provides further evidence of Nabonidus' activities in the area. The heavily weathered scene is similar to one found in the area in 2012 and shows Nabonidus paying homage to the symbols of Sin, Samash, and Ishtar, as well as to a fourth symbol that resembles a snake. These two de depictions are the only ones of Nabonidus that features this symbol. It's possible that the snake-like symbol had special significance for the local Arabian people whom Nabonidus boasts of conquering. One of the simplest explanations for Nabonidus' ten-year absence from Babylon is that he was endeavoring to extend the might of the empire to the south and trying to gain control of the valuable trade routes of western Arabia. Other explanations offered by ancient sources, a 
apart from the idea that the king was simply mad, include the suggestion that Nabonidus suffered from some ailment he hoped time in the desert might cure. Parchment fragments of the Dead Sea Scrolls discovered in the Qumran Caves of the West Bank offer a version of this story. These fragments preserve a literary work known as the Prayer of Nabonidus, which may have originally been composed by Judeans living in Babylon. Its author or authors suggest the king suffered from a severe skin condition and fled Babylon, perhaps to avoid polluting its sacred temples with his unclean body. Once in the desert, he prayed to the god of the Judeans for relief. The source of this story could have been, well, an urban legend that arose in Babylon during Nabonidus's absence, and may have also inspired the account of the mad king in the book of Daniel. Perhaps it was whispered that the king fled to the desert to pray to Sin, the moon god, for cure to a leprosy-like malady. Other Babylonian works suggest the god, by virtue of the moon's pitted surface, was able to cure diseases of the skin. Whether or not he had an illness that was relieved by his stay in Arabia, by 543 BC, Nabonidus had returned to Babylon with his devotion to Sin undiminished. In the last years of his reign, Nabonidus commissioned a series of stelas and other inscriptions that emphasized the primacy of Sin. Some of the most vivid examples of his devotion to the moon god are inscriptions on stelas that celebrate his restoration of the god's temple in Haran and record the autobiography of Nabonidus's mother, Adad-Gupi, who is said to have died at the age of 102, just before the end of her son's reign. The inscriptions describe her service to the moon god, while at the same time taking the priests of Babylon to task for their alleged disrespect towards sin. Nowhere do they mention Marduk. Instead, Nabonidus' inscription suggests that Sin was on the rise, perhaps as the one god who could unite the diverse and far-flung people living under Babylonian rule. Documents from this time also suggest that Nabonidus was threatened by the rising power of Cyrus, who had then bested the Medes and supplanted them as Babylon's main rival. Some of these documents record that Nabonidus ordered statues of the patron gods of all the empire's chief cities to be brought to Babylon for safekeeping as a precaution against a Persian invasion. Three cuneiform texts, the verse account of Nabonidus, the Nabonidus Chronicle, and the Cyrus Cylinder give accounts of the last days of Nabonidus' reign that are not generous to the king. They followed the march of Cyrus' army into Babylonia and the entry of his general Gubaru into Babylon itself in 539 BC. It only took two weeks. It was probably the swiftest collapse of an empire in history. According to these accounts, the people of Babylon were fed up with Nabonidus' rule and welcomed the Persians with open arms. The texts say that Cyrus restored Marduk to his rightful status as Babylon's most important deity and that Nabonidus was sent into exile. In these Persian period cuneiform accounts, Nabonidus's apostasy is invoked as an explanation for the fall of the city. They claim that Babylonians considered Nabonidus an utter failure as a ruler. 
but at least two rebel leaders who rose up against the Persians in the century after Babylon's fall styled themselves as sons of Nabonidus, suggesting that the king's memory still enjoyed some goodwill in the city. Perhaps some even remembered Nabonidus not as a mad king, an absent ruler, or a moon god fanatic, but simply as a Babylonian trying to reinvent his empire to ensure its survival, and as a man who simply ran out of time. But just what happened in the lost years of Nabonidus? Why did he abandon the city he was ruling over? And what did he do during his time in Tama? It is thought that Nabonidus first became interested in Tama during his campaign against Edom. Tama was an important oasis from which lucrative Arabian trade routes could be controlled. However, why Nabonidus stayed for so long, roughly 10 years, remains a mystery. One theory is that he was not comfortable in Babylon, which was the center of Marduk worship, where he was expected to perform public rites centering on Marduk's cult during the annual New Year's festival. On the fifth day of the festival, the king was required to submit himself to Marduk in the presence of the high priest, who would temporarily strip him of his crown and royal insignia, returning them only after the king prayed for forgiveness and received a heart slap in the face from the priest. I'm just going to say, old religions, new religions need to take some notes. Seriously, I would go to church a lot more if there was some face slapping. I'm just saying. And I'm just saying, around here in Baptist, we need to have some slaps. Just saying. Anyways, moreover, on the eighth day, the king had to implore all the gods to support and honor Marduk, an act which may have been unacceptable to Nabonidus if he was devoted to sin as supreme. Some have suggested that Tama was attractive to Nabonidus as an archaeological site, where he might find sacred inscriptions or prophecies related to his own spiritual quest. Another possibility is that the king had become seriously ill and went to the oasis of Tama to recover. In the Dead Sea Scrolls, a fragment known as the Prayer of Nabonidus relates that Nabonidus suffered from an ulcer, causing him to retreat from civilization and stay in Tama until he was healed by a Jewish exorcist after praying to the Hebrew God. And I quote, I, Nabonidus, was afflicted with an evil ulcer for seven years, and far from men I was driven, until I prayed to the Most High God, and an exorcist pardoned my sins. He was a Jew from among the children of the exile of Judah. During my stay at Tema, I prayed to the gods of silver and gold, bronze and iron, wood, stone, and lime, because I thought and considered them gods. End quote. This legend may explain a confusing issue in the book of Daniel, in which the king in question is called Nebuchadnezzar. However, this Nebuchadnezzar's son is named Belshazzar, which was in fact the name of Nabonidus' son, who reigned in his stead while Nabonidus was at Tema. It may thus be the case that the book of Daniel confuses Nabonidus with Nebuchadnezzar. However, Daniel describes its king's disease as a type of madness rather than an ulcer, saying, and I quote, He was driven away from people and ate grass like cattle. His body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair grew like the feathers of an eagle and his nails like the claws of a bird. That's Daniel 4.33. 
It is now known that during his stay in Tama, Nabonidus adorned the oasis with a full royal complex, most of which has come to light during recent excavations. Regarding Nabonidus' return to Babylon, this may have had to do with the mounting threat of Cyrus and growing disagreements with Belshazzar, who was relieved of his command directly after Nabonidus returned, along with a number of administrators. The Nabonidus Chronicle indicates that the New Year festival was indeed celebrated by the king in Nabonidus' final year. Nabonidus' successor Cyrus brought an end to the Neo-Babylonian Empire and initiated the ascendancy of Persia. Cyrus's policy of returning religious artifacts and priests to their home sanctuaries soon extended to the empire's western regions as well as he allowed the Jews to return to Jerusalem with their sacred vessels and begin rebuilding the temple. Thus, the end of Nabonidus' reign also marks the beginning of the end of the Babylonian exile of the Jews, as well as the beginning of the Persian Empire. And with that, we have come to the end of our episode. I thank you for joining me here today, and I hope you'll take a little time and reach out to me and share your thoughts on today's episode and what you think. You can always reach me and the show at darkenigmapodcast at gmail.com. And if you have a suggestion for a future show, you just want to tell me what you think, drop me a line because I do reply to every single email. And on that note, that's all the time I have for you this evening. I thank you for joining me here on Renegade Talk Radio and... You guessed it, my darlings. Don't forget to tune in next time. See you, my heathens. I love you. We don't sugarcoat shit. This is Renegade Talk Radio. Renegade Talk Radio.